Here we go. All right. Is it warm in here? Yeah. Yeah. Let's turn on the, all the skinny people are like, I love it. Jeez. Turn on these fans. All right. If you're a first-time visitor today, I'm glad you're here. Don't ever leave. Stay forever. Be good. All right. Um, let us... What's up, dog? All right. Um, let's pray over this message. Father God, we love you. We praise you. We glorify you in the mighty name of Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and that it's active and that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. God, we pray today that you'd use this word to change us, challenge us, and to convict us. Father, we pray that as uh, I've prepared, God, that you would speak directly through this word, God, that lives would be changed because of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever had something horrific happen in your life? Have you ever seen God turn it into something good? I, my, my, today is Father's Day, and, and if you've been at Faith and Victory for a while, we don't really spend a lot of time celebrating anything other than Jesus here. Uh, if you're a dad, happy Father's Day. Do your job. Make sure your kids don't go to hell. One of the greatest pains of my life is that my parents got divorced when I was uh, probably like four or five years, maybe three or four years old. My parents got divorced. It's one of the greatest pains of my life that I grew up without my father uh, directly involved in my life and leading me to the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, that moment in my life has completely redirected every single part of my life. God, God used that and turned it into something good and that I would not be the man that I am today had my mom and dad stayed married and my father raised me. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of it. Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel 22. We're going to be verses 6 through 23. If you're joining us for the first time, the, 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 the story in the simplest of terms to bring you up to speed, there's a king called Saul who's king over Israel. There's another guy called David who's supposed to be king. Saul is chasing after David, trying to kill him. And we join this story in verse 6. It says, when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah, with his spear in his hand and all of his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, and that there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Amalek, the son of Atub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent to call Amalek the priest, the son of Atub, and all of his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob. And they all came to the king, and Saul said, Here now, son of Atub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me and you and the son of Jesse and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So Amalek answered the king and said, and who among all of your servants is as faithful as David and who is the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? 
Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to anyone in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of this, little or much. And the king said, you shall surely die, Amalek, you and your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand is also with David. And because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me, but the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore linen ephod, also Nob, the city of priests. He struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now one of the sons of Amalek, the son of Athub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me and do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. Well, there we are. This is the story. Um, For those of you that are just joining us, you are at a church that uh, uses and preaches the Bible. That's what we do here. And we go through line by line. We don't skip over stuff. We don't glaze over stuff. We've been in 1 Samuel since, I don't know, last fall, and we've just been going through it. Now, there's blessings and challenges with living that way in a church in that we can't skip over things. Like, and, and that's one of the, 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 the things I love about it is that we're forced to look at Scripture. Uh, the challenge for me is that sometimes there's Scripture that comes up that I'd, I'd rather not talk about. Like, it'd just be easier to just kind of be like, hey, let's get to the part where you're going to have a great life and everything's going to be awesome for you. Let's, uh, let's preach that every single week. You know, you'd be beating them off the stick. Um, I, I'm just not that type of pastor. I'm not that type of preacher. Um, I believe that the whole entire Bible was written for your benefit. Uh, from Genesis to Revelation, every jot, every tittle, it's, it's important. God put it in there for a reason. And so we get to this part in the story where, again, David is running from Saul. And, and, and if you were here a couple of weeks ago, David was involved in this part with the priest where he needed to eat. The priest gave him some bread. He lies. Uh, these other things happen. But this guy, Doeg the Edomite, is there. And so now that they're here, <clears throat> Saul shows up and he's with with uh, Doeg and, excuse me, and he tells uh, his servants, hey, let's kill all these priests because they gave quarter to David and they didn't offer him up when they knew that I was running after him. And the servants are like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to kill these. And so he turns to this guy, Doeg the Edomite. He's like, how about you, man? What's up, dog? You going to do it? And Doeg's like, bet, I'm in. Let's do it. And so Doeg goes in and he does, he does better than expected. He kills these 85 priests. Then he kills man, woman, and child, don, donkeys, and oxen, and just eradicates the whole entire thing. And David's like, man, I knew this was going to happen. And so he had their one priest out of the 86 made it with him. And David's running off with him and like, dude, let's get out of here. We're not going to stay here because this is bad. And so then I'm reading the scripture this week and I'm like, so wh- where's the what's the message in this thing, man? Why, why is it in here? Like, what, what does this have to do with who we are as Christians in 2019 in Auburn, Washington? What, why, why, why does it matter to us? Like, why, why would God put this story in here and why, why would it still be in here? And again, if you go back to a couple of weeks when we talked about it, if I'm the writers of the Bible, I'm ripping this page out. I'm like, nah, let's not include that. Let's do something else. But they left it in here. And so, so what do we do with it? If, if you don't get anything else out of this message, if you're not listening to me, 
Listen to me right now, okay? Because I'm about to go deep. We're getting deep today, okay? And some of you might get lost. So if you want to remember something, remember this. God is good and you don't have to worry about it, okay? That's, that's the whole entire point of the sermon is God is good and you don't have to worry about it. But we're, we're going to get into this. We're going to assume a little bit of a working knowledge. If, if you get lost, then you should have been reading your Bible from the time you were born and you wouldn't get so lost, all right? So let's get into this thing. This guy, Doeg, right? Doeg is an Edomite, possibly a high official. He's put in charge of things. Saul has put him in charge of, uh, uh, of things in his house. But Doeg is part of the Edomites, and the Edomites are a tribe that absolutely hate Israel, like a deep-seated hatred of Israel. And so from the beginning, you're kind of like, why is this guy that's from a tribe that completely hates Israel inside of Saul's court being a part of what's going on? Um, uh, chapter 21 of 1 Samuel makes it clear he's in charge of Saul's animals, that he was a man of influence. And, and so the, the commentators kind of look at Doeg and think like, well, maybe he was a convert. Like maybe he had been converted into Israel or he was on a path of conversion. But it's very clear that he comes from a line that's an enemy of Israel, that he was a high-ranking official. And in this moment, he zealously executes 85 of God's priests and a bunch of other people that were just collateral damage as innocents. Now, there's, there's kind of two parts to this plot. And again, if you didn't know the plot, when David was running from Saul before, he ended up with these priests and he's with these guys and he ends up lying. And Doeg, the Edomite, is there for some reason. And David is in that story. He's like, dang it, this guy that works with Saul is there with me. And so now he knows what I'm doing, right? It's kind of like if you skip out on work and then you're somewhere and you see someone from your work. And they're like, I thought you called in sick. I'm like, please don't tell, right? I mean, it's, it's that kind of moment where he was in wrong place, the wrong time. Doeg knows what's going on. So Doeg agrees to destroy all of these priests on command of Saul. And, and what happens here is that Doeg is kind of the bridge between the sin of David and the sin of Saul. The sin of Saul and how he's been living for God, chasing after David. But the sin of David and that he's coming out of this time where he ate the consecrated bread, he ate and he lied. And so Doeg kind of bridges those sins in that moment. But as you look at this story, you have to wonder, so you got David, you got Saul, you got servants, you got priests, you got Doeg, you got the guy that survives. And you're kind of wondering like, okay, who's the culprit in this story? Who's, who's the one that we really need to kind of focus on that did all these bad things? And, and it, it's easy to say, well, maybe it was Saul's fault, right? I mean, Saul's the one that orders the killing. And so, uh, you know, maybe it's his fault or Jonathan, maybe it's Jonathan's fault. Jonathan's not really in this story, but if Jonathan had packed some bread when him and David had gone on their little excursion, David wouldn't have had to have eaten the consecrated bread. Is it David? He's the one that lied to the priests uh, in front of Doeg. And, and, and the, the very easy answer to this story is that Doeg's the bad guy, right? I mean, he's the one that's killing the priest. He put his hand to the sword. You know, if you're in a court of law, you can't really be like, well, I only killed 85 of them. I didn't kill 86. And that guy told me to do it. Like, you, you that's not an out, right? Doeg's the one. He's the one that kills all of these people. He's the bad guy. Now, this was the moment this week when I was studying this scripture where I thought this is a really great opportunity to preach a sermon about how bad it is to kill God's priests. 
and that you and turn it into leave the pastor alone, quit trying to kill me. You know, I mean, as thought it'd be a great, great sermon, and kind of penciled some stuff out because that's what you do. You make the scripture <laughs> say something it doesn't say to serve your own purposes. Um, sadly, that's not what this scripture is about. Because for people who want easy formulas to live by, this story creates a dilemma. See, we we live in this world that they want to turn Christianity into bumper stickers, right? And, and, And so it's easy to live by a credo that says God is good all the time and everything that happens bad is evil. Like that's easy, right? I mean, and people want to boil Christianity down to these simple statements of Christianity is about loving God, loving people, and that's everything. It's not really, uh, you know, people say, oh, well, God is love and, and he is, but he also despises the wicked. I mean, like you, you, you can't just take Christianity and be like, well, if I can't explain it in a sentence, it's not worth it. God didn't give us a pamphlet or a bumper sticker. He gave us a whole entire book, right? Genesis to Revelation. So we kind of have to live, breathe and die within the midst of the word of God and kind of go deep to what it is. Again, we're a church that's not going to skip over the hard parts just because it's easy, we've got to live in this conflict of what does God's word say in light of what we know everything about Jesus and who we are as people of God. It's not just simply the priests, though. This is is where we get into the meat of this thing. So these priests die by the hands of Doeg. And, 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 And for someone that doesn't know anything about the Bible and you're here today and you're like, okay, Doeg kills priests, this is bad. Well, earlier in the story, a few months ago, when we were in 1 Samuel chapter 2, there was these wicked, wicked priests called Eli, Phineas, and Hophnia, or Hophni. And they held the ephod, and they, held, and they talked directly to God. And, and from the surface, it appears is that Doeg's massacre is a random act of evil that Saul just arbitrarily says, like, I'm mad at them, I'm mad at David, kill the 85 guys. But it's actually the fulfillment of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 31, where God spoke to these evil, evil priests many chapters ago and said, Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. The, the killing of these priests is a promise that God said to these bad priests from chapter 2 that didn't want to live according to how God was telling them to live. These priests, uh, they were wicked sons, and they would take the sacrifices that God, that had been offered to God and given for themselves. They would stick the fork in, take the big piece of the meat, like all these things that God said. And so they did something wrong, and then God in chapter 2 says to these evil priests, you have now crossed me, and you're going to die. I'm going to destroy your whole entire line. It is not going to go well for you. And so a a reader of this story would think as it was progressing, like, well, those guys got off, right? And all the other chapters, you don't really hear about that. You don't hear about uh, those guys being destroyed. But here's the fulfillment of it in this moment. 1 Samuel 2, verse 27, that a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense? to an ephod before me. And, and did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me? This is God talking. 
to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever, but any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. And one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of your priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. This massacre of the priests is the fulfillment of the prophecy from the man of God. This is the means by which God is cleaning house. He's taking care of these 85 priests because they're connected to the bad priests because God needs a clean priestly line to be able to get to Jesus Christ. Secondly, Doeg's actions are influential to begin the demise of Saul. In this moment, Doeg is the actor, but Saul is the instigator. Saul is beginning this process of going to kill these men And after Doeg does it, it it just shows more of Saul's failure in his leadership. And and if you stick with us as we move through the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is going to completely and totally go sideways in this end of this book. And you're going to see really how bad it goes for Saul. Now, Doeg makes it happen. He destroys everything. Why does he do it? Because Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekites and he failed to do it. So God pronounced judgment against Saul earlier. And now Saul is done. That, that, this, is the, uh, this is the beginning. Earlier in the story, Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekites. He didn't destroy the Amalekites. And so in this moment, it's judgment on the priests. It's judgment on Saul. It's judgment on David, all at the hands of Doeg that are completely connected to God's profession to people that cross God that they're going to be dealt with. It's the complete fulfillment of it. Doeg's massacre signals the end of Saul. Saul rejected Samuel as priest and placed Ahijai, a descendant of Eli, as priest. These priests don't support Saul. They protect David. Saul turns from God. He turns from his word. Doeg kills the very priest that could bring him back to God. This is where it just starts to go, what? (laughs) These priests are from the line of Eli, which God has condemned, but they're still his priests. They still carry the ephod. They still are in a place where they could be the very instrument to tell Saul to repent through God himself. Saul could repent in this moment. Saul is saved. The priests are used by God and everything goes great after that in that moment. But Saul didn't repent. The word doesn't go forth. And now they end up being massacred. Now, this is a major turn in the story because it really shows that Saul is spiritually and morally bankrupt. God removes his protection from Saul, and we see more of his demise in future chapters. And it's a very, very complex story. Um, And it's complex in the sense that 
we look at the story and we think death is bad. Like, there's not anybody, if I asked her, I said, hey man, I know this guy, he went in and he killed 85 pastors. Good or bad? You'd be like, 85 pastors, dead, bad, right? I mean, most people would say that. But, but here's where it, it starts to really get complex is that the, the, the Edomite, right? The, the Edomite of Doeg, he's from the line of Esau. Now, in Genesis chapter 36, there's Jacob and Esau. One was the child of promise, and one was the, not the child of promise. This is part of the cosmic plan that has been going on all the way from the beginning of Genesis with the seed of Satan that happened in uh, uh, the, the creation story where God says like there's going to be a cosmic battle between good and evil for all eternity until my son returns uh, to save the whole entire world. And so what do, what do we do with this story? Is God the author of evil? Like does God, does God is it the devil? Because if we're going to take this evil story and we're going to unpack it, we're going to see the good that comes out of it. How can we stand and say God is good when God uses evil to accomplish his means? Who is the author? You guys with me? You mopping up what I'm spilling? First thing is this, okay? Let's give it context. There is real evil in this world. Every single one of you can agree with that. There, there is evil in this world. It's at every turn. It's, it's in your neighborhoods. It's on the street. It's on the TV. Everywhere that we go, that there is evil. And the evil signifies the enemies that are at war with God's people until the end of the earth. The, the, there, is, there is no way that we're going to eradicate evil from this wor- world. We're not going to legislate it. We're not going to be able to fix it. You, you will continue to see evil until you die or until Jesus comes back. Evil is a part of this world. It will stay a part of this world, which isn't to say we shouldn't fight it, which isn't to say that we shouldn't preach against it. I'm just telling you, man, you're never getting rid of evil. It's going to continue until Christ returns. And so when you look at the evil in the world that happens around you, wondering why it won't stop, you have to remember that you live in a sinful, fallen world that sin has entered in. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as one man, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. From, from the time of Adam and Eve, sin entered into this world, and from that there's been this cosmic fight between good and evil that will continue until Christ returns and solves all the problems. And so do not be surprised when evil happens. Evil people do evil things. That's just what happens. The Bible says in 1 John five nineteen, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Sway means influence. That means that even now as you're sitting here, the author of death, Satan himself, is doing everything that he can to destroy your life. He wants your marriage to fail. He wants your health to fail. He wants your finances to fail. He wants everything in your life to fail because when you get destroyed, it makes him happy. It doesn't make God happy, but it makes Satan happy. And so he is orchestrating, Satan is doing everything that he can to orchestrate destruction inside of your life. That's why 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You will notice the times that you have fallen into sin and destruction is because you were not paying attention to the fact that the devil was orchestrating things in your life to get you to be destroyed. He, he, you, you may not be paying attention and not be on the defense, but he's on the offense every single day. 
There is a constant battle between children of the promise and children of the seed of Satan that is a cosmic battle that's happening. And, and when we turn into quick little things of like, the devil made me do it. But the reality is that the devil probably did. He probably influenced you and tried to get into your brain and tried to get into your actions to get you to do stuff that you know that you shouldn't have done. <clears throat> now, what Doeg does is that he shows people in this story, like, I, I can't think of a, well, I probably could. This is a pretty disgusting story, right? And if anything, what this story shows is that we need a true king. Like it, it, this, this massacre points to the need for a savior. You have evil King Saul that does evil things. This evil Edomite that goes and does evil things. If anything, it says like, this is why no earthly king will ever satisfy this is why no earthly, uh, earthly leader can be trusted beyond the, the chief king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ, because evil exists in this world, but it doesn't exist in Jesus Christ. That's what this, this points towards, right? So for you, you, you get caught up in the day-to-day, and it reminds you that there's real evil in this world that wants to destroy the people of God. Do not get caught slipping. Do, you cannot take a day off. You can't expect that it's not going to happen to you. None of us are, are, are immune to the influences of Satan over a long period of time. He'll do everything that he can to try to destroy us. My, my daughter just started driving a, a month or so ago. She, yeah, exactly. She, uh, she uh, usually walked to the bus. And my daughter, I, I've told her this from the time she started walking on her own. And I, and I teach it to all my kids, but I'm talking about my daughter. As I always say to her, head on a swivel. I tell her all the time. So she leaves in the morning. I give her a kiss. I said, Faith. And she goes, head on a swivel. And, and she, she knows it. I, there's not a time, with, even if she's not leaving for school, I tell her that. And what does head on a swivel mean? It means you're looking like, around like this, man. Kind of paying attention. What's going on in my surroundings? I, I, I tell my daughter all the time, listen, when, when you're walking to the bus, do not be on your phone. Don't be on your phone because when you're on your phone, you can't figure out what's going on around you. Now that she drives, I tell her the same thing. Do not be on the phone when you're walking to your car. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Keep your head on a swivel. When you get in the car, don't get on your phone. You start up your car and you drive away. Why? Because the world is filled with evil. The world is filled with evil. I, I love God and, 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 I, and I love my children. I love my wife. But I live under the constant awareness that we live in an evil, fallen world. I don't, I don't pretend that evil doesn't happen. So when my kids leave the house, head on a swivel. Spiritual application is your head on a swivel in your spiritual life. Are you watching out for that evil that's coming around? Stay off your phone. Look up. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Secondly, God is completely good and does not cause evil, but can use it nonetheless. God is completely good and does not cause evil, but can use it nonetheless. Now, Doeg is a small part of the biblical record, but look what God used him for in this story. To stop Saul, judge the house of Eli, correct the priests, clean the priestly line, chastise David for his line, and it moves us closer to the arrival of the Savior and shows us the need for an eternal Savior. God was not the author of Doeg killing 85 priests, but he uses the story of it and the actions of it to do some good things. 
And, and this is that, that, that wrestling that we use within God and his scripture where I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend that evil didn't happen in the Bible. I'm also not going to pretend that God doesn't use it for his good purposes. It is completely true that God is 100% good. There is no sin in God. There, there is nothing wrong in him at all. Uh, but Romans 11.22 says, Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. I am completely fine with believing that God is 100% love, that God is 100% good, but I also believe that God can use evil things to accomplish his holy purposes. And people say, well, there's this dual nature of of God. The, The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of Genesis is the God of Revelation. The God of John is the God of Matthew, is the God of Malachi, is the God of Isaiah. God didn't change his name tag. He, he was there in the beginning. He'll be there in the end. And so you've, you've got to understand this idea of, of just because an evil something happened doesn't turn God into being an evil God. God has given us 100% free will while at the same time his sovereignty can use it to accomplish good things. It's true. Evil things that have been turned into good things in the Bible. Think about Joseph. Some of you don't remember the story from Sunday school. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he became powerful in Pharaoh's house. And then he was able to help Israel because he was in a position of power after his brothers sold him off into slavery. Uh, Joseph said this in Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is today to save to save many people alive. God is not the direct author of evil, but because of his sovereign permissive will, he will use it. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Romans eleven thirty three. oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We, we want these simple answers in a complex world, and this story makes it even more complex. And, but, but you know what? I'm fine wrestling with it. I'm, I'm fine living in this dual nature. And again, I, at the beginning, I was talking to you guys about the, the, the divorce of my parents. God, God would never look at, my, at a set of parents and say, you know what? I think I'm going to divorce these guys, and I'll have, I'll have Matt and Mark be raised in a fatherless home, and oh, it'll make him cry out to me as his savior when he's 15 and then I'll be his father and then I can take him and I'll turn him into a pastor for me. What? No. God hates divorce. It was not of God that my parents got divorced. But God used it for good. God used it for good. And, and, and I use the story of me not because I'm special. Dude, I'm navel lint. Like I'm nothing. But if you look at your own lives, you can think about the, some of the most horrific things that God has used in your life to bring about to good. You're like, man, this thing was horrible, but God turned it into good. Amen? Think, think about this. <laughs> Crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus had to be crucified to be able to forgive us of our sins. God used evil men to bring about his plan. What do you think? Watch this. Your mind's going to, you're not going to sleep tonight. People very easily would say death is always Satan. So Satan 
killed Jesus to make sure that people would be saved from their sins? But God's not the author of evil. So did God make Jesus die for, or maybe they intended to kill Jesus, but God flipped it on him and turned it around for the salvation of all. God is good all the time. God can use his sovereignty to turn any, he can take people trying to destroy his son into salvation for all humanity, for all that would turn to him in faith and trust in him alone, that belief in Jesus Christ would set you free from the law of sin and death, that you'd be free from sin and forgiven of all of it. Acts 2.23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. You have to believe that God is sovereign. And I've used that word and you're like, what does the word sovereign mean? It means supreme power or authority. That's what sovereign means. God owns it all. God does it all. It's all him. And, And this is a very hard concept for many to grasp that God is in control. God is the ruler. God is the all powerful authority over all things in existence. Then why does bad things still happen to good people? Because free will and God's sovereignty. I'm fine with the dual nature of this. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Romans 9.21, does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor, another for dishonor? Lamentations 3.37, who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? With also Proverbs 19.21, Daniel 4.35, Psalm 135.6. And and again, the, the idea of the cross is the complete example of the intersectionality between Evil, goodness, coming together, God turning it together for good. If the evil men had not killed Jesus, we would not be experiencing salvation on the other side. God is not the author of death and evil, but God uses death and evil to bring about the most important cosmic event in all of humanity, that we would have complete salvation in Jesus Christ, going back to the original text, All of this leads up to that reality of like, we can only have one king. We can only have one savior. We can only have one God. And that Christ's return is going to come back one day and is going to save us from all evil, is going to save us from all sin. And we're not going to have to deal with it ever again. So that's the intro. Let's get into the part of what it means to you. What does it mean to you? Don't miss this, folks. If you've been checking out and you were lost, this is the cliff notes, okay? Number one. Do not worry. When you, when you worry, you are not trusting God. If I'm, if I'm David running away from Doeg after he just killed 85 priests and I got one with me, I'm thinking to myself, I'm next. Saul's serious. Like he, if he's going to kill 85 people and he's going to take out a whole entire town, it's well within his possibilities to take me out. If I'm David though, I'm reminding myself, wait. God said that I'm going to become king. God said that I'm going to be safe. I'm going to trust God in this moment. I'm going to believe God in this moment. I'm not going to go down a path of worrying in my brain where I begin to think things that aren't true. God is true. His word is true. He's going to bring it to pass. But worry happens, does it not? We worry about our spouses and our kids and our money and our jobs and our cars and our retirement and our health and all these other things. No one? Oh my gosh, man, Where, how did you guys do it? Because for me, those thoughts come in my mind all the time. You guys are like, no, pastor, we just trusting in Jesus every day. 
Never had one second thought about nothing ever. Me, I worry about my job. I wonder if you guys are going to be able to put up with me for the next 25 years. Still amazed you guys are showing up. I worry about my spouse and her health and our relationship. Is she, is she going to figure out how nasty I really am one day and pack sand? My kids, are they going to live? Are they going to be around? My money, my life, my future, my retirement, my health, all this stuff. But the Bible says in Philippians 4, 6, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Read Matthew six twenty five. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on is life, not more than food and the body, not more than clothing. You know, it's interesting. People say, well, if you're a pastor, why do you worry? I'll tell you real quick. I, I'm off track. Stick with me. Well, you'll be done in a minute. Okay. God has created you with a hunger. You eat a meal, you get hungry. It doesn't satisfy. Spiritually, God has created you with a hunger that if you're not feeding on the word of God, you become hungry. So God keeps you 100% dependent on him 100% of the time. And so just because you worry, it's an indication of hunger. It's an indication of going back. It's an indication of like, oh my gosh, I haven't been feeding on God's word. I've got to go back to him. I've got to feast on his word so that I'll stop worrying. He creates a hunger inside of you. Either you're going to trust God in everything or you're not trusting him in anything. You got to talk to God about it. Just tell him like, God, I'm worried. I don't know what I'm going to do. Secondly, praise God for tribulations. God, thank you. I'm going through the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. I'm so excited. I feel like, what is the matter with you? Why? Because I know that God's going to turn this together for good. I don't know how, but he's going to do it. This is the worst it's ever been for me. I've never been more upset, more angry, lost more. But hallelujah, praise God, he's going to do something with this. I can't wait to see what he's going to do with this. No one is getting through this life without experiencing some sort of pain. Nobody gets out. Doeg did a bad thing. Priests died. A city was destroyed, but it all worked out. Romans 5, and not only that, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. You cannot develop hope without tribulation. No pain, no perseverance. It is totally okay to go through something. God is still faithful through it. God can take anything and turn it into good. This is one of the greatest promises of Scripture, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It rarely feels like God's going to turn it into good, but I promise you, friend, He will turn it into good. He will take the most seemingly benign, horrible thing in your life and bring life out of it. And lastly, don't worry. Praise God in the tribulations. Lastly, remind yourself of God's plan. It's all going to work out, right? We're all in the Hindenburg. There's no reason to fight over a window seat. <clears throat> Psalm 37, 9, evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Proverbs 14, 11, the house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Revelation 21, 27, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles heaven or causes an abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Folks, evil will eventually be destroyed. The evil are not going to heaven. There's no sin there. There's no crying there. There's no pain there. Nothing is there. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have asked him to forgive you of your sins. You've given your life to him and you live for him. You're going to heaven, man. You're not going to have to deal with this nasty world, worrying about death and destruction or anything else. Stay close to Jesus. At the end of the game, you win. Amen? Close your eyes. Bow your heads. If you've never given your life to Jesus and you need to do that today, we want to give you an opportunity for that. It's really quite easy. Either you are a Christian or you are not. Either you've asked for forgiveness of your sins or you haven't. The Bible says very clearly that all men have fallen short of the glory of God and that we need a Savior. And it's very simple. You say, man, I don't even understand what it means or what it takes. Well, it's pretty easy. Either you're living for Jesus or you're living for yourself. Either you've been forgiven of your sins or you haven't. And if you're ready to stop living for yourself, you're ready to start living for Jesus and you want to be forgiven of your sins, we want to pray for you today. It's really quite easy. I just want you to raise your hand and say, I'm ready to be a follower of Jesus. Who needs to make that decision for the very first time? Hand held high. Don't let today pass. Don't miss this one. Secondly, maybe you've known the truth since you were a child. Maybe you've known the truth from your teens, your 20s. Maybe you knew the truth a couple years ago and you're like, man, I knew it. I was walking in it. And I don't know what happened, but I turned away and I didn't turn back. I need, I need to come back into the Father's house. I, I want to leave my life of sin. And I want to be in the Father's house. If you need to declare that to God today, to come back to Him, rededicate your life, I want you to raise your hand right now and say, I'm ready to do that today. It's been too long. I'm ready to be back with Jesus. For the rest of us, I don't know what you need. I don't know what you got out of this, not what you needed out of this. Maybe you just need to worry less, trust God more, not be so concerned about all the stuff that's going on around you. Trust in Jesus and Him alone. Trust in His plan. Trust in His provision. Trust in His ability to turn all things together for good. Father, we give you our lives today. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name.